on from the the European Super League collapsing uh, live on the Dan Omar show uh, last week. And yeah, it's been it's been kind of a week of a lot of reflection, I think, for a lot of people working in the game and a lot of discussion about what's wrong, what's broken, uh, what can be what could be almost salvaged from um, what we have in the game today. I think today we want to discuss obviously some of that fallout, um, some of the some of the discussions turned to the Champions League from 2024, which I think um, has been a really interesting discussion, um, and I've certainly got some thoughts on it. Uh, but Dan, I just wanted to ask you, a week on from everything falling apart at the seams, what's what's your kind of overriding feeling about that, you know, 48 hours or so in which the, the European Super League came and went? Well, I think there's no coincidence that it all happened live on the Dan and Omar show. In truth, I see I see strong correlations um, in in the data that probably you can go into in more detail later on Omar. But um, I think um, it all just it all just unravelled very quickly, didn't it? Um, we sort of had um, the, Jamie Carragher and Neville on that on that Monday night football, which which seemed to I'm not sure if it was like the like the touch paper and the and the fire, but especially from the UK side of things, it felt like there were things sort of falling into place by that time. And you know, I think I think the truth is, as much as uh, you know, maybe we are disproportionately impacted by social media when it might not actually be the case. It felt that at least from the UK clubs, that that sort of government intervention quite quickly, um, and the sort of even threat of legislative change um and uh and, and obviously um new investigations that are now being put in place um it it felt like that was almost the the turning mark pretty quickly and and there was such sort of fan activism on the uk club side as well is that as as carragher almost said when one club went um two sort of went and then we saw the sort of pretty quick demise from there but you know, I think the same point applies, Omar, doesn't it really? Which is that this was a play in order to, you know, in recoup significant losses that have obviously happened over what will be an 18-month, 24-month period. But the overarching significant problem was obviously the semi-closed nature of um, of the league, um, or rather of the, um, of the, the cup tournament. So... You know, taking that into account, and obviously the things that have happened subsequently, where UEFA's threatened some of the clubs that haven't, you know, equivocally, unequivocally, um, you know, ended their potential participation in the Super League, etc. Um, you know, I, th- I think the same type of incentives and drivers still apply. So, we talk on the other side. Oh, I'd be really interested in your views on the um, on on the UEFA now. I, I guess it's still the UEFA format that's that's there in the Swiss model that um, everyone is talking about. So I just wonder if you've got any thoughts on where the incentives lie for those clubs. Obviously, a week on, but then also if you could run us through a little bit on what what UEFA are actually proposing and and sort of your views on um, how it stacks up. Yeah. So I think. Obviously, you know, we spoke last week, I think, about why the Super League had come about and the feeling that these clubs weren't realising in revenue the value that they were bringing to the game. Um, And I think um, what they have since realised is that the value that they bring to the game isn't in isolation. You know, the, the fact that 
I don't know, Man United have a lot more fans globally, viewers on TV, social media followers. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It happens in the context of the wider football economy, the wider football landscape, narrative, show, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I don't think necessarily the owners of the clubs realise that, partly because it is hard to know to what extent, you know, the Premier League itself, La Liga itself and so on, underpins the the actual value in these clubs. Um, and I, I think the, the owners obviously made a play and they thought, well, the value's in us, it's not in the in the leagues. Um, and that was proved really wrong because actually the fans place enormous value on the structures that exist within domestic club football at the moment. And it, I think the, the owners realised that, the clubs realised that over, over the last week. And that puts them in a pretty tricky situation to do anything more, I think, because it does mean you are wedded to a degree to, you know, the, the infrastructure that's been in place. And, you know, yes, names have changed and, you know, models have changed and so on. But it is essentially league structures that have existed for 100, 150 years, um, you know, invented by Victorians and and now these uh, these 21st century uh, modern-day capitalist owners can't really um, pull themselves away from it, which which is kind of, I just suppose, amusing in a way. But but I can imagine for them, you know, deeply frustrating given some of their some of their ambitions and thoughts and, and what they've experienced in the US as well. Um, so what what we've got left is you know the ecosystem that that we've got, and more specifically the brands of competitions that they have to compete in. Uh, and so they have to find ways to get more out of those competitions, these clubs. Now, obviously, they're not in a great position now. They're, they're in a worse position than they were 10 days ago um, because suddenly their threat to do something else has pretty much disappeared. Um, but uh, what they can do is, is potentially try and move things you know, gently in their direction, which is, um, I think you shared a piece with me by Matthew Syed, which spoke really well about the, the various little iterations that these big clubs have made over over the course of you know 10 15 20 years uh, and actually they've done really well out of it you know if you look at the kind of direction of travel um, in Europe and in uh, domestic football towards these clubs so they're, they're left with uh, these competition structures Let's start with the Champions League so Champions League's moving to what is known as a, a Swiss model uh, from 2024 which was a, a model it has been described as being pushed by um, the big clubs. And whilst that is true, I think there has been a lot of support from other other clubs um, that compete in Europe that aren't necessarily one of the, the dirty dozen or the, the 12 clubs that were that were breaking away. My understanding is that there are other clubs that have been pushing towards this format as well, particularly those uh, in small leagues that um, see revenue growth from the Champions League and Europa League rather than their domestic leagues, which are naturally constrained. So the Swiss model um, is actually a really flexible competition system that can be scaled up and down based on the number of teams that you have uh, and determining the number of matches you want. So you could have, you know, you could have a 100-team Swiss model with eight match days. You could have a 70-team Swiss model with 20 match days. You could have, you could have to a greater or lesser degree, whatever you want, um, which... For a competition organizer, it's obviously hugely appealing um, because it, it means it's scalable uh, in a way that, um, you know, the World Cup or, or historical structures aren't or haven't been. 
Um, and so clubs, instead of playing six matches, uh, it's been settled on that they'll play 10. Uh, I think some of the UEFA and some of the clubs were pushing for 12, but, but there's been a bit of a compromise reached. Uh, and that will place uh, a lot of pressure on uh, on the number of matches played. I think Ilkay Gondwan came out last week um, uh, or earlier this week and, and kind of said, what about, there's nobody thinking of the players here. Um, and I think that is one of the things that people are a little bit um, angry or um, disappointed about is that it feels like these proposals have been sneaked through when, when really actually they've been discussed for a long period of time. Uh, so that's kind of a rambling background, I think, of, of where we've got to where we are now. Um, but the, the Swiss model is here to stay, and I think um, I think it'll be quite an interesting competition to watch for 2024, despite uh, what, love, what a lot of other people think. And I think, Omar, the, the interesting bit that I see about that is two things. So what would be quite useful is if you could, um, as, uh, in a little bit more detail, talk us through then how the model would work in terms of how a fixture list would be put together based on particular variables. Obviously, it's some type of seeding on the basis of how well the team is doing and then the teams that they then play accordingly and how that is sort of decided. But the other bit that um, I think is fascinating, bearing in mind what's happened in the last week, is the historical coefficient qualification for, I think it's two clubs that don't qualify through the domestic leagues in a particular season and effectively are guested uh, passes for that season based on the historical coefficient. So bearing in mind, we've gone from the semi-closed league proposal to still the possibility of two legacy clubs because of their past European records getting into the Champions League directly. I wonder whether that, that element will stand the test of time too. Yeah, so so on the first one, on... Uh, the draw it'll be quite interesting actually I, I, I'm kind of a bit of a competition geek to be honest but um, the way it will work is that teams will be seeded as they as they are today or you know, there will be a seeding system um, and if you're in pot one you'll be drawn against a to play a, two, uh, a pot, another pot one team uh, or rather in the same way you're drawn against a pot two team a pot three team a pot four team today You'll be drawn against each of those teams, and then another set of pot two, three, four teams. Uh, pot one, you also play two other pot one teams, so there'll be more kind of big clashes, if you like, in the group stages. Uh, so that gets you to eight matches, and then I'm sure they'll do some sort of combination of um, you know you either play another pot one or pot two team, you play another pot three or four, four team, um, or they might kind of size the pots accordingly. Um, so you'll end up playing ten different opponents as opposed to just three. Um, as what happens today, uh, you'll, you'll only play them once, uh, home or away, not home and away. Um, and I think that there's a couple of merits to this. So, firstly, you're getting a more diverse range of competitors. I think you get more interesting matches. Um, I think if, as a broadcaster and as UEFA, it's potentially a little bit disappointing or upsetting if, upsetting if Man United or Liverpool get drawn in a group that isn't that attractive. I remember few years ago, Liverpool got drawn in a group with uh, Sevilla, Spartak, Moscow and Maribor. None of those are really kind of interesting games for a broadcaster or a league and, and actually even, dare I say it, Liverpool fans as well. Um, so you'll end up getting a few more interesting games in the group stages. Um, and importantly, there's this perception that a lot of them will be dead rubbers. I don't think that will be the case. Um, there are, there's discussions around um, seeding the um, 
the position. So if you finish higher in the in the group, then you'll get a better seeding for the for the next round, um, which which is obviously important. Uh, there'll also reportedly be cutoffs uh, at ninth and twenty fourth place or eighth and twenty fourth place. So if you're in the top eight, you go through to a future round potentially. Um, so there, there's a lot of things that I think they'll play around with in terms of creating the jeopardy within the competition. Um, and I, I actually think it will be a, a really interesting, compelling uh, competition going forward. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see how, um, how how it's all kind of manufactured and, and pulled together. But I think uh, I actually think it will be quite an interesting competition. The big challenge, of course, is the fact that there are four more matches and that means that English clubs in particular won't be able to play in, in the League Cup. Um, so there's more to be decided on, on that competition. Uh, and there will be more, you know, high high end competitive games, which will put strain on the players. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm certainly not um, an expert when it comes to physiology of where players being pushed to the limits. But we're seeing this season clearly, you know, the fixture congestion is putting putting pressure on the players. Um, and then just to just to close that off on the on the coefficient, the what's been discussed is the fact that. Yes, teams that have performed well historically in Europe over the last five years um, would be able to get a, almost like a boost to their access to the Champions League. So provided you finish within European places within your domestic league, um, you would kind of get, um, you would jump the queue as it were into the, into the Champions League um, rather than um, sitting in, um, in the Conference League or the Europa League. And that I would agree is not a good development. Um, you know, again, anything that's not based on sporting merit um, is is not a development that I'd be supportive of. I think it's it's a f- fundamental principle of of domestic leagues and, and European competition. Um, but you can understand why again the big clubs have been pushing for it because they don't like the idea of having one bad season and, and falling out. Which you know, if you, if you've got um, you know. In the name of self-interest, that's perfectly understandable. But in the name of good sports, uh, I, I don't think anyone would agree that that is good, uh, good sporting merit. And Omar, if I can just ask one more thing on on then how the Swiss model then outs into the knockout. So just to go back one stage, then effectively would it be let's just say top eight go through to last sixteen, and then would it be then nine to twenty four playoff have a, almost a playoffs to get into the last sixteen? Was was that the the idea? I think that is that's what's been discussed. Yes, um, I'm not entirely sure what's been um, what's been finalised, but I think that's the idea. So you don't have yeah, how many teams eighteen or so teams um, you know stranded um, you know with nothing to play for at the end of the competition. I think uh, there will be a fair bit to play for. Um, so, yeah, it, I, 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 as I say, I think it'll be an interesting competition. I think the diversity of opponents is good. It, in truth, it gives you, you know, one of the arguments for the Super League is that, oh, you know, Chelsea, Real Madrid don't play each other that often. Let's get them playing each other twice a season. And yes, this model actually works towards that. So some might argue it's a happy medium between the existing Champions League structure where teams just hardly play each other or might play each other once every 10 years or whatever it is. Uh, and the Super League, where teams are playing uh, each other on a much more regular basis. Uh, others might argue, well, actually, what we've got today is, is absolutely perfect. Why would I want more Chelsea-Real Madrid matches? The fact that it comes around every once in a while is is great. Um, so I, I suppose the proof will be in the pudding to a degree. You know, um, to what extent broadcasters will pay more for the rights, to what extent um, fans actually end up watching watching the games in you know in greater numbers but uh but yeah i i, I 
as I think it will be an interesting competition. Um, I wanted to pivot the conversation away from me talking, uh, as I've been for the last 15 minutes. I wanted to ask you, Dan, um, on what these leagues are trying to do to combat another ESL breakaway. It, you know, obviously, I think the assumption is it is dead in the water, at least for now. But there's been a few developments I've seen in Serie A and the Premier League around trying to stop clubs breaking away in the future. How how robust, how kind of possible is that to do? Well, yeah, I mean, as we as we talked about when we were prepping for this a little bit, I, um, you know, just like there were regulations in place um, to effectively prohibit what has tried to be in, um, orchestrated by the clubs, the Premier League clubs, where you had to provide, where you had to get consent, for example, of the Premier League um, to be able to play in a particular competition or in the same way that was baked into the Premier League players contracts that all clubs had to adhere to the rules they were Premier League FA UEFA FIFA rules as well which would have obviously potentially been a problem in terms of the wider framework you know members clubs can effectively make whatever rules they want in the same way that the Premier League is a members um, club um, that doesn't necessarily mean they are legal is the is the truth and interestingly there was the that Madrid court case which came out I think the on the Tuesday, I think, when it was on Monday night, when it was reported that um, the Madrid court, after an application by the, the European Super League clubs, had more or less uh, put a temporary injunction stopping UEFA and FIFA from doing anything which would potentially damage the, the ESL competition. So um, the, the truth is, is that, um, again, I don't want to go into competition law um, case, sports cases, but there's MotoGP and there's the international sp- speed skating cases, which do relate to a degree to we- and to, 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 to the degree that um, uh, a sports governing body could effectively pro- prohibit um, a competing competition from doing the same thing. Um, now, it all comes down to, you know, uh, legal uh, questions around proportionality and non-discrimination and not going beyond what is reasonably appropriate in the circumstances etc and whether you've got objective criteria as to why you should be stopping particular breakaways for particular sound reasons query whether there's one of those sound reasons is protecting the the, the pyramid structure in European um, club football but um, you know ultimately um the the regulations are there until they are struck down by someone that challenges them based on um the laws of um uh, laws of the country or the laws of the particular jurisdiction that it's in um the interesting thing that i thought omar that came out of um some of the reporting especially in athletic is that david ornstein reported that as part of the the documentation that was um uh, put to all the different clubs and was signed um, we talked about a bit about, didn't we, about that that sort of valuation piece of, you know, four four billion euro, you know, effectively um, a debt fund that J.P. Morgan had um, had put in place, um, and querying how you know big a broadcasting um, a streaming deal would potentially be. It was reported that um, that actually the clubs had agreed that up to four of those games per season could be streamed exclusively on their own core channels, which was quite an interesting one, presumably outside of the ESL collective centralised structure. So I found it quite interesting that one, if one of the points is 
um, all of this money was going to have to be found by a broadcaster or a streamer or an over-the-top provider by way of subscription service or pay-as-you-go, uh, pay, you know, pay, pay-per-view. Um, that, that's a significant amount of money not to have exclusivity on, um, which I found quite an interesting one in itself. So you had all of these interesting parts into the fire. The other one being is that, you know, these 12 clubs was possibly going to be 14 were on the hook to 4 billion euros worth of debt that was having to be repaid to JP Morgan over a particular period of time, which I think sort of goes a little bit under the radar too. So, um, you know, from letters uh, to from, from, the, from the leagues to particular clubs saying you can't do this again because we're going to prohibit you in the regulations. There's a query about whether that's legal in any event, but it doesn't look like that's going to be tested, presumably isn't going to be tested out anytime soon. But I was just fascinated in the actual economics of um, potential clubs getting these they call them grants, but really it's just forward financing of future broadcasting monies in truth at a interest rate and how that was actually going to, um, you know, play out and how they were going to find those significant, significant sums. Um, and then all of the other fallout around broadcasters suing and then club suing, and then basically everyone suing everyone like we had uh, potentially from, um, the project big picture stuff as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, one of the interesting, we can always play out, you know, what would have happened if the ESL had been perhaps better formed, better formulated, had, you know, stronger ground to stand on and, and the clubs had actually pushed through last week. Um, because, you know, the, as you say, this was all um, underwritten by um, JP Morgan. It was, you know, these clubs were banking on the fact that they would find a broadcast deal. They would be able to sell subscriptions to their own platforms or, or whatever they wanted um you know if they were to launch a super league and, and recoup that money over over a certain period of time but i think the fan reaction was so against the super league that even had even if the super league had been rolled out and you know the, they'd kind of literally walked away from their domestic leagues and said we're, we're doing this whether you like it or not i actually think it would have been an enormous failure. This isn't. I, I was perhaps initially of the view that oh, maybe this, maybe this is something that might work. Um, not that I like it, but maybe there are enough fans globally who actually just want to watch Real Madrid Chelsea each week, um, and there are enough fans who, um, you know, who really yearn for a much more Americanized model of, of European football. Um, and look, as, as you mentioned right at the top, you know, social media and fans outside stadiums aren't necessarily representative of, of the whole, but it was certainly sufficient for, to put the clubs off um, going forward with it. So I do wonder if that magic money tree, I think that um, the clubs were banking on, whether it is actually out there um, and the degree to which they can grab, you know, the media rights value that currently sits in domestic and european competitions whether they can grab that and take that into another league so um it's in many ways it's not just dead in the water because of um fan opposition i think it's dead in the water because it just wouldn't work i think that's um that's been one of the realizations for me in this past week is that you know i'm not sure it was even a viable a viable model um to be going forward with um and now you know to to some of the regulations that you spoke about there i think the, the the clubs are kind of you know have the hand side a little bit because what's their what's the chip they can play if you know if I don't know Serie A wanted to massively redistribute TV money such that the poorer clubs 
you know, earn a lot more or if they wanted to, you know, not care about scheduling games to protect the bigger clubs in Europe. What's what's the chip that those those three break, breakaway clubs in Serie A have to play now? I'm not I'm not really sure what it is. Um, so there will be a lot of pressure on domestic league governance now uh, in those leagues. Um, you know, obviously one of the things that came out of big picture was the the bigger clubs having a, a greater a greater vote vote share. Um, so you know. These leagues, I think, have to be really careful about what they commit to and promise because everything rests on how these leagues are governed now going forward um, and how um, decisions are made because at the moment uh, the power has shifted back towards the leagues and towards perhaps the smaller clubs in those leagues. I think that's exactly right. And it feels like everything, again, is in football uh, reactionary. So the first thing everybody does is... um, try and um, cover the hole that the gaping hole that was found to a degree it's the same with you know we go back to lots of things Portsmouth and um, uh, insolvency and financial fair play for the Premier League when they said they were never going to do it third party investment with Tevez and Mascherano when um, uh, the rules needed to be changed Um, you know types of transfer owners and directors test related stuff gets Uh, beefed up when there's a particular scenario that happens and it's the same with a lot of regulations a lot of the time it can be reactive because you want to cover a situation that you don't want to um, happen um, again and I'm not saying that's anyone's fault I'm just saying that that's the way things sometimes work to specifically try and deal with a particular situation that no one wants happening again and then sort of incentives and behaviors then then change um, to a degree Um, and then, Omar, last couple of minutes, I'm, I'm sort of conscious that this time we, we've chatted a lot more. If anyone has a couple of questions or wants to raise their hand and ask anything in particular, then we've got a couple of minutes. It'd be great to have um, yeah, any input that anyone has. I was just going to briefly turn, unless Omar, you had anything else you wanted to chat to, um, to, the, to the announcement today about um, the Euros allowing, or rather uh, UEFA allowing for the Euros an extra three players in um, the, the, the squad and whether you actually think that's good, indifferent, or actually causes more problems than it's uh, than it's worth. Yeah, so I think um, firstly it's it's addressing the symptoms and, and not the problem, I suppose, of the last year, which which you can't undo. So the you know the, the symptoms are the fact that players are falling down injured everywhere. Uh, the problem is, of course, has been no competition willing to compromise on uh, on its calendar, and so we've had literally. You know, weekend midweek, weekend midweek, weekend midweek, um, and I don't know about you, but I think this is the first season in a while that I've had, or maybe ever, that I've had football fatigue, and I, I worry a bit whether they'll last into the Euros, or whether a bit of some football kind of lighten me up a bit. I didn't realise it was um, Chelsea Madrid tonight. It was the truth until about ten minutes ago. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's it crept up on me as well earlier this afternoon. Um, so it, yeah, it's looking to address you know the problems, and and you would hope that it's a temporary um, solution because. I don't think for future tournaments you want to be in a position where international teams need to take 26 players. I don't think that's a good thing. Um, in terms of for this Euros, I obviously understand why it's there. Um, I thought Michael Cox, as ever, wrote a really good piece on on this for the Athletic this afternoon. Um, you know that you won't need you won't need those extra three players. It's not as if they're going to provide huge tactical flexibility for your team. Um, so actually, is the question. You know, are, do you pick a good tourist, um, as they often do in cricket? Um, you know, f- on the fringes of a of a touring squad, um, do you actually not pick those players at all, or do you risk bringing players in who are actually 
you're going to have to manage your expectations because they're just not going to play at all. Whereas I think in a you know in a in a group in a 23, there's you've got you know 11 first choice players, 11 backup players, and then the, the third choice goalkeeper. So really, it's only a third choice goalkeeper who's expected, and probably second choice goalkeeper. You have to manage expectations, but all the others are, are there in case there's an injury, um, you know, in their preferred position. So yeah, I, I I'm a bit indifferent on it. Um, I think it'll be an interesting thing to see how how teams manage it. Um, but as I said, I think the the main thing is let's hope it's not a thing going forward because then we really will be having too much football. Great stuff as always, mate. And um, yeah, we covered actually quite a lot I think but if anyone as always has any particular queries questions thoughts for for discussion for future weeks we've always got loads in uh, um, in the bag but it's always great to hear on particular topics so Omar brilliant to chat as always love hearing from all your stuff and um, yeah hopefully we'll do it again this time next week great cheers Dan see you next week cheers thanks everybody